Will you pray with me? O oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So have you ever been told by someone else that a physical place or maybe an emotional space is safe, but you didn't feel that way yourself? There's several examples of this that I want to share, one of which is that, you know, over the, the recent years, we've had so many mass shootings. And in 2019, there were two that were pretty close together just last year. There was one in El Paso, Texas, and one in Dayton, Ohio. And therapists reported that following these two events, they saw an increase in the number of people who were coming to see them with anxiety-related issues. And people were saying things like they felt like the, the mass shooting could happen anywhere, so they were constantly on guard. It didn't matter if they lived far away from these towns or nearby. They didn't feel like places that used to be safe were safe anymore. Groups that have been historically marginalized, such as LGBTQ people or women or people of color, people of various religious, racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic groups, and people who are differently abled also know what it is like to not feel safe. This sense of lack of safety is both an emotional and also a physical sense. Alex Abad Santos shares that as a gay person, he just learns a behavior where he checks the room. He says, you know the public places where you can hold your boyfriend's hand or kiss him and where you can't. Likewise, in an interview on NPR, Professor Paul Butler, who is a Georgetown University law professor, shares one of his many experiences of being racially profiled as a black man. He said that he was walking home in his beautiful upper middle class neighborhood in DC when the cops started following him. It was like a cat and, gap and, and mouse game that he moved and they moved. He stood still, they were still. And so finally he got to his house and instead of going inside, he stood on the street and he, and he asked them, what are you doing? And they replied to him, what are you doing? He said, well, I live in this house. And then here's how the conversation continued in his own words. They say, prove it. They made me go to my porch, and when I got there, I said, you know what? I don't have to prove nothing. I knew this because I'm a law professor. And they said, we're not leaving until you go in the house because we think you're a burglar. I say, you're doing this because I'm black. They said, no, we're not. We're black, too. And that was true. These were African-American officers, and even they were racially profiling me, another black man. Safety. Emotional and physical safety is a big deal for us humans. Our hearts long for safety, where we can be fully at peace, where we can let our guard down. And in the words of Lilith St. Crow, the kind of safe where you can sink in, down into your bed at the end of the day and know that you can go to sleep and everything is going to be the same tomorrow. The challenge is that an environment that some of us consider safe isn't experienced the same way by all of us. Heterosexual couples rarely think about whether or not they can hold hands in a public space. 
people without disabilities don't generally pay attention to whether or not there's enough handicapped parking or an accessible bathroom nearby. Men often don't notice that women's ideas are typically ignored until shared by a male voice. And white communities feel safer to see the police cars patrolling the neighborhood. In this New Year's Revolution series, we're focusing in on the second question of our baptismal vows, which is, do you accept the freedom and power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? In these past two two weeks, we've been talking about the first part of that. We talked about accepting the freedom and power that God gives us. We talked about what it looks like to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. And today, we're looking at that last part in whatever forms they present themselves. You know, sometimes evil, injustice, and oppression are easy to see. And other times, evil, injustice, and oppression are not easy to see. At least, they're not easy for all of us to see. They come in forms that affect some groups disproportionate to how they affect other groups. And sometimes, we have to be willing to open our eyes and to see the story or the experience from the perspective of the most vulnerable person or group in the room in order to be able to see the evil, injustice, and oppression. Daryl Wing Su, who is a professor of counseling psychology at Columbia University, has coined the term microaggression. You might have heard this. But Daryl Wing Su defines microaggression as the everyday verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights, snubs, or insults, whether intentional or unintentional, which communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative messages to target persons based solely upon their marginalized group membership. Now, microaggressions can cause something that's seemingly small, like hurt feelings, or they can have huge consequences that literally can become a matter of life or death. And so I want to share with you a video of a group of teenage girls who share their own experience of microaggression. Like, a deep psychological effect, and 
we try to just use jokes to like make things less awkward or like ease social experiences, but it is important because you need to like be aware of what you're saying and like who you're speaking to. Think of what you say and how it can affect the person you're saying it to. That, that last line is important. Think about what you say and how it might affect the person you're saying it to. There's two more examples uh, that'll come up here on the screen in just a minute. Two people holding signs and one of the signs says, can you see as much as white people, you know, because of your eyes? Or you don't act like a normal black person, you know? You know, more often than not, we don't intend to commit microaggressions against one another. They're born from our implicit biases, these tendencies that we all have to view the world in the way that we have been conditioned to view it. And then we speak and act from these implicit biases, often not realizing the way that our words or actions might impact another person or group. But when we do the hard work of beginning to make these invisible, unconscious biases visible and known to ourselves, then we begin to be aware of and we begin to be able to correct ourselves when we commit those microaggressions. And the work of making the invisible visible actually makes the world safer for all of us. Because here's the thing. It's not as if there's one singular group that commits microaggressions against everyone else. There are multiple implicit biases working within each one of us at any given moment. We might have worked consciously to make our language toward LGBTQ people affirming and then unknowingly continue to speak microaggressions against people of color. Or we might naturally affirm people of color but not realize that we continue to speak microaggressions against women. Or we may be sensitive to microaggressions when they are somehow directed toward or at us, and so we feel the sting of them, not at the same time not realizing that we continue to say things that are microaggressions toward other people. Safety. We long for safety. And in order for us to resist evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, we must be willing to see and to understand life from the perspective of the most vulnerable person or group. The holy family you seek flees to Egypt seeking safety. They also return to the land of Israel seeking safety. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Herod finally died. Now Herod was the one who had ordered the genocide of all the children under two years of age. Herod was in fact the reason that Mary and Joseph took their small family and fled as refugees to Egypt. And when Herod died, Joseph had a dream in which God told him that it was safe to go back to the land of Israel. And so Joseph dutifully got up and took his family back to the land of Israel. But when they got there, he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod. And Joseph was afraid to go there. Now, I have to admit something. As I 
think about this story from my own perspective as a white American, I have a hard time relating to the fear of Herod and Archelaus. Because I don't actually fear those who are in political power. And by and large, I tend to trust that people in authority are required to act to protect their citizens, which is me. This is my default. And it's based on my own lived experience of the way that authorities interact with me as a white person. But years ago, I lived in Peru for a summer, and I quickly learned that this was not the case in that country. There were armed military officers around all the time, and every, every time they saw one, my Peruvian friends were always nervous. They never knew what the officers were going to do, and they would immediately default to their most submissive and compliant behavior and whisper to me that I'd better do the same. In the US, the eyes of white communities began to be opened as the Black Lives Matter movement caught on in recent years. And one thing that movement tells us is that people of color and communities of color do not perceive the presence of police authorities in the same way as white communities do. And this is because of their lived experience and interactions with the police authorities, no matter what race or ethnicity the police officers are. And so why is Joseph scared? of settling in this place where Archelaus is the ruler, Joseph and his family are Jews. They are a religious and racial ethnic minority living in a land that is under Roman rule. They haven't done anything wrong, but they are considered a threat because of who they are, because of what they look like, and because of the religion that they practice. Now when Herod died, his kingdom was divided up into three parts, at least. Depends on which history you read, but we're going to go with three today. And his three sons inherited different portions of it. And so the part that's kind of light pink was the southern part, and Archelaus became the ruler in that part. And then the middle part, which is kind of the little bit darker pink, is where Antipas became the ruler. And then the part at the top that's almost brown is where Philip became the ruler. Now, other historical sources tell us that just before Herod died, there were two popular Jewish teachers, Judas and Matthias, who had gotten their pupils to remove the golden eagle that sat at the entrance of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the Roman Empire used this statue of the, the golden eagle as a symbol of the supreme authority of the people who ruled the land. But Judas and Matthias argued that according to the Ten Commandments, it was a sin to make idols and that God alone ruled the land. And so they could not have that statue of the golden eagle at the entrance to the temple. But of course, the rulers of the state, right, the Roman Empire saw that as a, an act of threat. And so the teachers and their pupils were burned alive as a way to send a message. But there were angry crowds who thought that it wasn't punishment enough. And around that time, 3,000 Jews were killed during the celebration of the Passover to reinforce the message that Rome is in charge and you better just fall in line. 
Now Archelaus at that point thought that all was quiet. He was ready to travel to Rome to be crowned as the ruler of the southern land around Jerusalem. And so he went. And while he was gone, more riots broke out and 2,000 more Jews were killed. It's around this time that Mary and Joseph return to Israel from Egypt and arrive in the southern part of the kingdom, the part where Archelaus is in charge, the part where 5,000 Jews have just been killed. So can you see what they must be thinking? This is not a safe place. No way is it safe for a Jew to settle in this land. We cannot stay here. And so Joseph has another dream, and it guides him to go further north. This small family journeys on to the middle part of the kingdom and settles in the district of Galilee in a town called Nazareth, where Archelaus' brother Antipas ruled. So that would be up in the, the middle pink. All right, it was just that far north. So I want to go back to that question that I asked you all at the beginning. Have you ever been told by someone else that a physical place or an emotional space is safe, but it didn't feel that way to you? When I think about this question right now, perhaps in part because of all that is stirring in the United Methodist denomination, I think about the ways that LGBTQ Christians are often told that a church community is safe, only to find their experience of that congregation to be less than safe. And Anthony Venn Brown writes about how churches are on a journey from welcoming to accepting to affirming of LGBTQ people, and he's developed this diagram that shows you these uh, points in the journey. And when a church is affirming, There's no question that you and your partner are welcome to be part of the church community, that you're welcome to bring your gifts to share as we all seek to bring about the kingdom of God. This is the church, this is the local congregation that Chum aspires to be. And microaggressions are part of the difference between being welcoming and being affirming. I think this cuts across many different categories of what it might mean for people to be safe. If we are to be a church that resists evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms that present themselves, then we have to open our eyes to see all the forms. We have to look at things from the perspective of the person or group who is most vulnerable. We have to reflect deeply on the ways that we individually or we as a community need to grow so that we can fully live into our welcoming statement. You know, there's a statement that was developed some years ago uh, by this congregation. It's on the back of your bulletin every week. It says, we embrace diversity in our congregation and community. We affirm the dignity and worth of every person created in the image of God. We honor the guiding principle that discrimination is incompatible with God's message of unconditional love. And then the part that I put up there, that we welcome into full membership and participation in all aspects of our church life, persons of every race, national origin, age, sex, I skipped over language, age, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, physical or mental ability, economic or marital status, and faith 
background, this is a huge thing for us to say. This is a huge thing for us to say. And yet, the words that we use to speak it aren't enough, right? That, that, that we have to also lean into living into this welcome. And that means sometimes we won't get it right, and sometimes we'll make mistakes, and we'll have to say we're sorry and try again and seek forgiveness. But we are who we are as a response to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the covenant that we make with God at our baptism. I do think about this in relationship to the struggle within the United Methodist Church right now concerning affirmation and inclusion for LGBTQ people. Because we are fighting to change the rules within our church denomination. And it is true that for the change for all local churches to be fully safe for LGBTQ people, for that to happen, hearts have to change as well. But we cannot underestimate the power and the importance of changing church law to eliminate harmful language against LGBTQ people. This makes me think of the civil rights movement. And during the civil rights movement, President Eisenhower attended a church service in Newport, Rhode Island. Now during the church service, he heard a sermon about the need for new civil rights laws. And as he was leaving, he said to a Navy chaplain, well, you can't legislate morality. And when Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got word of Eisenhower's comment, he was disheartened. But because it seemed like Eisenhower did not understand the power of the law and what it could do to make the invisible visible. And Martin Luther King Jr. knew that the law on its own couldn't change the hearts, but that it could establish justice in ordinary life, and that changing the law was the beginning of creating safety for African Americans all over the United States. And so he began incorporating this concept into his speeches, including a speech that he gave at Western Michigan University in December of 1963. And so this is what he said, a direct Now the other myth that gets around is the idea that legislation cannot really solve the problem and that it has no great role to play in this period of social change because you've got to change the heart and you can't change the heart through legislation. You can't legislate morals. The job must be done through education and religion. Well, there's a half-truth involved here. Certainly, if the problem is to be solved, then in the final sense, hearts must be changed. Religion and education must play a great role in changing the heart. But we must go on to say that while it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that is pretty important, too. And so, my friends, will you do that hard inner work of examining your own implicit biases? This is the work of Christian discipleship, my friends. And how they may intentionally come out as microaggressions. 
And then will you also do that hard justice work of advocating for laws and rules within the church, within the governments of the world, within our communities that promote safety for all people? Will you accept the freedom and the power that God gives you to resist evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Will you reach for the dream of the kingdom of Thanks be to God.